Well, certainly the lessons that we've learned are exactly what we've been talking about, is, is that the more collaboration and sort of open and honest work that you can do with people up front, um, the better off the project's going to be. And I always find that going out into the field, like onto the project site with people and walking it and listening, being very open and listening to what people's values are and what their objectives are for that landscape and, and recognizing that it's, they don't always match our own and that people do have different languages and cultures. And the thing is listening to people and working collaboratively with them and adjusting the prescription and doing that all up front. Um, I, I think that's what we've learned and I think we're better at it now. Hey folks, what's happening? Welcome to Your Forest. My name is Matthew Kristoff, and on this podcast, we talk about the environment and the science of sustainability. Today's episode was a really, really cool one. We're talking about logging a national park, right? So let you think about that for a second. <laughs> so uh, we're talking about Jasper National Park in Alberta, Canada. And uh, they had a bit of a pine beetle problem, a bit of a fuel buildup problem uh, right around town. And it was beyond the ability of prescribed fire to deal with safely. So they decided to go with harvesting, mechanical fuel removal. And uh, this is the story of how they came to that decision, uh, some of the issues they ran into while making that decision, who they got to do the actual mechanical fuel removal, to do the actual logging, uh, the things they learned, would they do it again, why they did it, all this all this kind of cool stuff. It was such a such a cool experience for me to be able to talk to these folks about this. Uh, I'm not actually going to even introduce them all because there's so many of them. There's actually four guests this time around. I think it's the most I've had on the go. And uh, three representatives from Jasper and one from Canfor, actually. Uh, Canfor is the company who was given the contract to do the actual harvesting within Jasper. And yeah, it was just such a really cool experience to talk about and listen to them talk about their collaborative effort and the lessons they've learned and, and, and how they've both Jasper and Canfor have kind of grown as a result of this and, and realized some things that they hadn't realized before. And it was just such a, a great story about how if we work together, the amazing things we can accomplish. So I, I hope you like it. It was incredible for me. Um, they're all going to introduce themselves as they go through. Uh, so you'll get to meet them all. And uh, I can't wait to get started. So let's just dive into it. Sponsors for this episode. Wes Fraser is the number one sponsor for this podcast for 2022. I could not do this without their help. Thank you, Wes Fraser. Greenlink Forestry is another sponsor. Again, couldn't do it without them. They've been with me since the beginning. Uh, Damaged Timber is another sponsor. Go to damagetimber.com, put in your forest tenant checkout to get 10% off. They put damaged timber in your home. Go to the website, you'll find out what it is. And uh, finally, Forest Proud is a partner. Uh, they've been with me for just a couple months now, and they are supporting forests as climate solutions. Uh, they want to keep forests as forests, and I, I appreciate their help with everything that they're doing. Uh, so yeah, without any further messing around, let's dive into this 
weird and wacky upside down world where we log national parks. <laughs> but for a good reason. And in the end, you find out that this is, it all makes sense. So, uh, yeah, here we go. So, uh, first of all, whose harebrained idea was it to log one of the world's most precious natural parks? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's a, my point, my point in saying that is that it's a, it's a bold thing to do, right? Like you, you, you did your homework and you, and you, you knew what some of the public ramifications might have been of, of trying to do something like this. So, uh, I'm assuming David, you probably want to speak to this a little bit. Um, yeah. Maybe just introduce yourself first and then, uh, we'll, we'll get into, yeah, how this sure. came about. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll give that a start and then I'll probably get Landon to fill in some of the blanks there. So my name's Dave Argument. I'm the resource conservation manager here in Jasper National Park. Which means I'm responsible for the, you know, the, the wildfire and prescribed fire fire management program, uh, along with a few other natural resource management oriented programs in the park. And I I came back to Jasper from an earlier point in my career where I worked here 20 or so years ago. I came back here about five years ago, uh, kind of into the very peak of our uh, mountain pine beetle uh, outbreak. I didn't quite appreciate when I accepted the job to return to Jasper that I'd be coming to find pine beetle ripping through uh, the pine forest here. The epidemic is now largely past, but we're left with um, uh, with the legacy of that on the landscape now. Uh, in the end, we've had something like 230,000 hectares of pine beetle impacted pine forest in the valley bottoms throughout Jasper. Uh, and I know our, our our neighbors to both the east and the west, BC and Alberta, are our BC's lived through that now, uh, and of course is still living through the legacy of that. Alberta is still struggling with with pine beetle in the landscape at this point, uh, and the impacts are pretty profound. So in a place like this, where we have been managing fire in various ways for um, well since the park was established in 1907 obviously indigenous management of fire was something different before park establishment and probably more effective than what we've been doing more recently <laughs> uh, we spent uh, uh, the early part of the this the, the 1900s uh focused on the idea that fire on the landscape was bad putting every single fire out uh and then only more recently came to understand that actually fire has a very important role to play in the landscape in a in a place like this and in a landscape like this where we're not actually engaged in commercial uh forestry activities where we're protecting and preserving uh the forest uh, in theory in a more natural state although that can be argued of course as well um <laughs> I like how we're getting fire to it right off the, off the bat here <laughs> <laughs> that's right but but keep that's right we'll get into it pretty quickly i'm sure keeping fire off the landscape for such a for such a long time uh along with a few other you know management actions and decisions that parks canada made in the early days has resulted in basically jasper being a uh an even aged monoculture of pine throughout an awful lot of the valley bottom where we used to have a lot more broken uh, vegetation patterns and and variety and variability here, and of course pine, uh, lodgepole pine is a very fire driven forest type. So we fought that fire for a long time and then started trying to put fire back on the landscape. But it's hard to catch up after that long of putting all the fires out or trying to put all the fires out. So when the pine beetle epidemic crept over uh, the continental divide and got into Alberta, 
this place was just ripe for the picking. Of course, we had a uh, 100-year-old pine forest, uh, a few warmer winters uh, that, that didn't knock the pine, uh, the pine beetle out of commission, uh, and then some hot, dry summers, drought conditions in, uh, for a few years that weakened those forests as well. So the pine beetle just ripped through here, uh, resulting in that 230,000 hectares of impacted forest. And we've got this community of Jasper sitting right smack in the middle of it. You know, 5,000 mm. people, permanent residents here, and then that grows significantly in the summertime when when the tourist season uh, is on. A lot of people sitting right here in the path of uh, potential uh, wildfire that is just, would be much more severe tearing through a dead pine forest with these red dead needles in the canopy and, you know, basically unbroken from here all the way to the B.C., border uh about 14 kilometers to the west of us is the border with british columbia and it's just a wide open valley of severely impacted pine forest with a prevailing wind that would push a fire right onto the community so we we looked at ways to try to break that up and and improve our uh, resilience to the threat of wildfire and and deal with wildfire risk reduction uh, in a variety of ways we've had prescribed fire units planned to the west of the community here for years where we've been intending we got to put some fire on the landscape there and break it up a little bit to serve as a bit of a a guard to the community this is before pine beetle we were planning this uh but prescribed fire in an environment like this takes very specific weather conditions uh to be able to pull it off it has to come into prescription and 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 it's a rare thing uh to get it just perfect so that we know we can do it safely and with the risk to a community like this right on the on the edge of those planned units, that's uh, just too high a risk. It's got to be just right uh, or we risk losing control of it. And we just weren't getting the right conditions. Then the pine beetle comes through and now we realize that there's no way we're ever going to get the right conditions to allow us to burn this area with this dead pine forest right on the edge of a community like Jasper. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's when we started casting around, looking at, well, what are what are the other options for reducing the fire risk in this community? And the obvious choice here is to is to remove that fuel load from the landscape mechanically. Uh, so it was never, you know, obviously we're not out to do commercial logging in a national park. That was never the intent uh, in any way. This was really about uh, improving um, the fire risk situation uh, for this community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but and even so, yeah, it all makes sense to me, right? When I first heard this story, like it all, it all checks the boxes. But I imagine for for you, you folks at parks, looking at this situation, going, okay, we we got these standing matchsticks that are ready to go up at any time. We've got this homogeneous, you know, layer of trees and dead wood, and just just the whole forest is ready to go up in flames. Um, how do we manage this? How do we reduce this risk? And then going. I know we'll log it. That had to have been like, well, uh, okay. Like there must have been, there must have been a whole chain of command, a whole, a lot of conversations, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of discussion around public perception before you even went looking for somebody to do this work. Yes, absolutely. This is an unusual project in a national park, but it's become more and more, um, common uh, especially in the mountain parks here you know there have been projects that are uh, modeled after this now happening in Banff uh, as well to deal with some of the fire risk of that community uh, but when we started thinking this way yeah it's it's a big mind shift 
change for a park manager to think, yes, we're going to log in our national park. If you go way back, <laughs> uh, way back in time, you know, there was commercial logging happening in Wood Buffalo at one point in time, but that's back before we were, you know, as diligent and careful and principled, I think, in how we're managing these places uh, as we are now. Uh, so in the modern era, logging in a national park is just not something, in Canada anyways, it's not something we, uh, it's not a go-to tool by any means. Uh, sure. So thinking about that as the only way to protect this community, you know, we've done some cutting of fire guards before. We have a community fire guard here that was logged, I don't know, about 20 years ago, Landon. I can't, maybe I'll let you speak about when the community fire guard went in. Yeah, <clears throat> um, it was actually back in the in the eighties that uh, it was first uh, started, and it and it started small and and gradually uh, got bigger and bigger. It started with a horse logging effort. It was then replaced by a little bit more conventional logging effort, and uh, that was the creation of the initial uh, community fire guard. Um, I. And uh, yeah, maybe Matt, I'll just introduce, quickly yourself introduce first myself. Here. Yeah, I'm I'm yeah. Landon Shepherd. I'm the uh, fire and vegetation uh, specialist here in Jasper National Park, and uh, and one of the uh, one of the people tasked with uh, trying to make uh, uh, David's life a little simpler and and deal <laughs> with some of the the larger uh, problems that that are our responsibility um, as managers of, of this land base and stewards of this land base right now. So mm-hmm. um, I think uh, an important uh, point about uh, dealing with uh, a forest that has been heavily impacted by mountain pine beetle and, and where, uh, where we had to come from that before we could get to a place where, where we were looking at, at applying uh, logging as as a tool to mitigate risk was that, mm-hmm. you know, there is a tendency to want to uh, push an easy button, and um, if you if you just went to logging as a solution, sure you can remove uh, forest. Uh, we're we're quite uh, capable of doing that as a as a species, um, but it it gets away from all of the. Uh, effects that happen from uh, fire as a, as a restorative process on the landscape, as a habitat renewal um, uh, tool, as a, uh, as a way of, of sort of setting a, a balance and, and a resiliency on the landscape that uh, mechanical treatments uh, can, can try to emulate, but do not, do not, I don't think even, even the most uh, uh, adamant and experienced uh, forester would claim that that they can absolutely replicate the effects of fire, and because well, I think they're different, they're totally different, right? Totally. Like, I mean, realistically, if you look at it, yeah. forestry is the way we do forest harvest is like we're trying to emulate natural disturbance because yep. that's the best way we think to do it, and it makes sense to me. But you're right, like a fire gets rid of all the little stuff, leaves the big stuff. Harvesting does the opposite, it, right? Exactly. So it's going to have different impacts you're going to have different things going on but uh yeah absolutely they're different they're totally different uh disturbances for yeah. sure yeah yeah i i can see that you've uh, given this a, a fair bit of thought and probably had other guests that have uh that have touched on this so it it uh it wasn't like an easy oh okay we'll just substitute this because obviously fire is a little uh a little too spicy in fuels that have been <laughs> affected by um 
uh, mountain pine beetles. So we still look for ways of how can we make this reasonable? And what mm. we uh, came to the realization is that either we would have to accept a, a highly elevated period of risk while the, the needles remained up in the canopy and waited right. until those fine fuels fell out of the canopy before we'd be back in a, in a reasonable risk situation. Or we need so to cross a, your fingers. Exactly. Like there is an ignition. Yeah. And, and you know, what? <laughs> you know, we, we, uh, actually it, it sort of turns out that there wasn't ignition towards the west of town in the intervening years. You know, in hindsight, yeah, maybe we could have, uh, uh, put that off and, and use the, uh, the hopeful, uh, approach. But but it's just not reasonable when no. when you have the numbers of people that come to a community like Jasper, two and a half million visitors in a in a single year, and and uh, a, a local population that expands from the just under you know six thousand residents to you know twenty thousand with seasonal workers. It's it's uh, it's just not um, uh, an approach that we would ever take because mm-hmm. we are quite focused on while we want to restore ecological integrity and, and meet our mandate. At the same time, we have to make sure that uh, we don't put people at risk. And, and that's our number one priority is making sure that uh, everybody's okay. So it, it meant yeah. that we needed to approach things differently. And there was a different impetus um, that was helped along by certainly events like Fort McMurray, like the Slave Lake fire, like series of, of very, very busy fire seasons in British Columbia. And there was a, uh, I think a realization or a public appetite to, to recognize that, yeah, this might not be, um, a comfortable move to, to switch to this other tool and, and to postpone. Cause I wouldn't say we replaced or, or, uh, in any way, decided we weren't going to be pursuing uh, a prescribed fire program that would that would bring that important renewal process back on the landscape. But it's how do we make it reasonable in the interim and address this elevated uh, threat, which is um, what sort of brought us to uh, the place where, okay, let's let's just make sure that we do it right. And that means setting it up that, uh, you know, we have have certain interests and and objectives to ensure that the post log landscape uh, looks a certain way and is able to perform uh, ecological functions a certain way. And um, if we're going to if we're going to be happy with that end result and not just uh, with the fuel reduction uh, benefit, then we better be pretty careful about how we spell it out and and uh, and who we. Um, engaged to do that work for us um absolutely yeah go ahead david yeah maybe i'll just add i mean we we started talking here about the sort of how did we come to the the idea or or the acceptance that we are going to see mechanical removal happen in a national park here and i think you know at the peak of the pine beetle outbreak here in in jasper you know that that was certainly a a discussion point, and it's uncomfortable for you know I've spent my career working in in our national parks, and 
you know, trained as a biologist and have always looked at this as a, this is about protecting and preserving this environment and, and logging is something else. Uh, right. We'll hear from Carrie in a bit about how logging is, is not always, <laughs> not always a bad thing. In this case, it's a, it's never a bad thing. It's if it's done right. Uh, but we'll hear about that in a moment. But when I first arrived here in that height of that pine beetle thing, uh, that was back in 2017, the summer of 2018 specifically, that was a hot, dry summer. We're surrounded by, by red dead trees in the landscape all around the community now. Uh, and it was a bad fire year in BC that year. And we spent the whole summer uh, not being able to see the mountains, the mountain view here because of the smoke in the air. Uh, and that mm-hmm. I think was really a turning point with the community and the public perception that we have to do something because uh, yeah. it was, everybody was on edge that summer thinking, is this the year? That we're going to see something right. significant happen in Jasper because we're you couldn't get away from the smoke. You're, you'd feel like you're smoking a pack a day, you know, every day when you get home from from work, and your clothes smell like forest, uh, like uh, uh, wood fire smoke. It it was an unpleasant summer. Everybody was on edge, and that's when we really started the push for no something has to happen here. And I think Absolutely. in a way that uncomfortable summer really helped um, shift the perspective that we need to take you know, what could be viewed as extreme measures in a national park to, to, to do some logging. And that's where we really managed to get over that hump mentally, I think, that we're going to bring in mm-hmm. this tool. We need to find yeah. uh, somebody we can work with that can do this right to the standards we need so that the landscape can continue to perform its various other ecological functions, as Landon mentioned. But I think that summer of 2018 was was critical in that in that mental shift uh, locally, yeah. anyways, that this has to happen for the public. And that I totally remember, David, your uh, uh, messaging because uh, Matt, we we often throw uh, poor uh, David behind the microphone uh, because he's uh, much more articulate than some of the rest of us. Um, that uh, he's a politician amongst you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I remember. David always made a point when he would talk about the areas that we were going to be mechanically treating that um, one of the, the primary objectives for those is that it would allow us to use fire at a landscape level on the other side of those treatments. And so mm-hmm. even when we are employing a tool that is being used to mitigate a fire concern, that uh, goalpost is still getting fire back on on the landscape, getting uh, yeah. a natural role, building up a resiliency on on the landscape that uh, that we really, you know, were given a, a stark lesson of, of what happens when uh, when you have an absence of, of disturbance and and different age classes and different uh, forest structures out there. And that's mm-hmm. what Mountain Pine Beetle uh, was able to very ably demonstrate um uh, for us on the landscape. And Absolutely. especially uh, when you step into a mountain environment, it's like it's projector screens all around you. And it really see uh, it. made yeah. us feel like we were the poster child for, for mountain pine beetle because it was on display for uh, for folks and, and it wasn't what they were mm-hmm. uh, expecting to see when they came to a national park. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And I, and I, and I do find it interesting. Like I know, like in our society, we've had this aversion to like the parks are supposed to be this like fortress kind of situation, right? Like it's the park, leave it alone, let it do its thing. But the problem is it's, 
it's it's not right the park is what it is because we made it so we stopped the we stopped the fire we it, it became homogeneous we got indigenous people off the land basically no cultural burning we did we did all this stuff and then climate change right which is you can blame pine beetle on climate change almost entirely for the scope of it right so the situation that we're in is one of our own making right it's human beings that created this and it's it would be foolhardy for us to think that well Nature will figure it out. It's like, well, what nature is going to figure out isn't going to be what you're going to want. It's just going to burn everything and there's going to be no community and there's going to be nothing left. And it's like, so this is a problem that humans created. Why not use all the tools that humans have to sort this problem out, right? I find it – like, I mean, I'm a forester, right? So I'm obviously I, – I totally believe in sustainable forest management and and doing things right that way, right? And, and that logging can be a solution to a lot of things. But I do understand – as a park representative, why you're like, well, the public's not going to like this and we are working for the public. So how do we deal with this? And so, uh, but it was, it's interesting to hear that even the public now is on board, that even they are realizing that, no, this is a situation. Um, maybe they don't understand that this is a situation that we've created, but they understand it's a situation that needs to be dealt with and that we need to use all the tools at our disposal to, to accomplish this. And, and also for one more last thing here, uh, is, uh, I think about if you were to do prescribed fire, if you were able to do it right right around town there, right? Um, it's not like that's a safe place for people to go hiking and walking their dogs and that kind of thing. You're going to have snags. You're going to have deadfall. You're going to – it's not – whereas if you do mechanical right around town there, if you do the mechanical fuel removal, all of a sudden it opens things up and you can – you can do those things, right? It creates more brows. It creates – there's all kinds of benefits that can be had and you don't have that that – fear of deadfall and that kind of thing right so i do see lots of different positives towards this this angle right it's interesting so just a little bit on that i think we'll we'll get into how we got into the into the relationship with canfor i'm sure here fairly fairly quickly but that's that next public? on the docket yeah <laughs> we got two more people in this conversation that's that right to speak that's right so we got to make some space for them but you know that 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 shift in in the sort of local mindset i think it was really interesting to watch because after that hot dry summer that i talked about earlier yeah. When the logging trucks actually started rolling through town, like that was a right. bit of a uh, an eye-opening moment, I think, certainly for me and for a lot of other people. When you picture Jasper, you know, a bit of a sleepy mountain town, suddenly there's yeah. like we had to bring those trucks straight through the middle of town to get them onto right. the highway and to get the, the logs on their way out of the park. Uh, and that's just something that I think nobody ever imagined that ever see is, you know, logging yeah. truck after logging truck. I'm sure truck that wasn't easy. Right through the middle of town, but it was amazingly well received. You know, we didn't oh, receive good. any sort of negative, um, that I can recall. We had no pushback on why this has to happen. And in the intervening years, we'll talk about what's happened since then. I'm sure a little more as well, but you're right. It's opened up that landscape. This, there's no, I mean, not much in the way of snags to worry about. And the public reception to that uh, has been phenomenal. The views are great up there now, way better than they were before when you were stuck in the middle of a of a pine forest. You can actually see the mountains from places where uh, I'm sure 100 years ago you probably had a mountain view. And since then, it's all been grown in with pine trees. Uh, and people really enjoy that. There are some negatives as well to that. I mean, we're concerned about what that means for increasing uh, bear attractants on the fringes of the community because the berry production up there has gone up, that kind of thing. So there's other, it's not all positive. There's other management issues that now we're dealing with because of that, uh, yeah. because of that work, but overwhelmingly well-received, certainly, even with those Absolutely. daily trucks hauling right through the middle of town. 
That's that's incredible. Yeah, we're really in a, in a in a shift in society, right? Like, and of course, like you said, there's going to be pros and cons of any application that you try to do, right? So, um, but no, it's very very cool. All right, so uh, obviously, Parks went through a rigorous process to get this approved, and through another rigorous process to find the right folks to do this job. It's a sensitive job. You want all of the all of the values to be considered and 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 you know treated balanced equally so that we can do this differently um just quickly why did you guys choose the can for to do this one of the biggest hurdles in in getting the approval here that you mentioned was was the idea of actually taking resources out of a national park as you mentioned earlier this is about this is as you said the fortress sort of idea we're protecting these resources for people to enjoy in a different way uh, and you know the Canada National Parks Act is not set up for us to to uh, to take resources out of the park and and use them yeah. in any way other than that kind of enjoyment and education. Uh, and one of the principles we tried to follow here is that we want this to be as low cost to the to Canadians as possible. There's value in the wood, uh, so we wanted the wood, the value in that wood, to help pay for the project to offset the cost of the project. But there's no not, mechanism right? established for for how how do we turn wood on the landscape in a national park into money to pay for the project. So that was a hurdle in itself to figure out. Well, how do we how do we adjust here? Because it's not, you know, it's not like crown land outside of the national park. This is governed by the Canada National Parks Act, and we never built that act with the intent that we will pay for work yeah. to happen based on the value of the resources. So. We managed to get through that hurdle first and accept that, yes, we do have, we, we built a process that allows us uh, to actually turn that wood into money to pay for the project. Yeah. So that was the biggest hurdle to get over. And then we had to go into a, so it wasn't a normal contracting process uh, because of that. You know, like we're, we're, right. we're well-versed in, in managing contracts where we are receiving a service from somebody and paying for it. Um, but to pay for it with the value of the resources turned it into something more akin to a, a realty uh, uh, process instead. So that was a challenge. Mm-hmm. But once we got through that challenge and got, then then we applied our normal contracting principles to go out uh, and look for uh, the right player to come in and do the work. And Landon, maybe I'll let you talk about that process. Yeah. Um, so, so I would say, uh, Matt, it was definitely in our minds that it needs to be a competitive uh, process. This is for the public interest. It needs to be uh, above reproach in terms of, of how the selection happens. And yeah. so we, we selected three uh, companies that had the capability to, to undertake a large-scale project from, you know, the access through the harvesting, through the um, uh, processing and, and, uh, and then trucking out the, uh, the logs. And, and so we, we did site visits, uh, with folks and, and they were free to, to check out the area that we wanted treated. And, uh, in the end, uh, we had, we had three bids and, and the bid that, uh, felt like was going to work the best for, uh, the people of Canada, you know, not, I don't. I don't want to sound uh, like I'm trying to be pompous. It, it, that's just how we have to uh, how we yeah. have to think and, and approach it. Yeah, uh, came Absolutely. from uh, Canfor, and I think uh, in in part it's it's because you know uh, Canfor 
has recognized that it's important to have a forest ecologist. And I mm-hmm. would say, you know, one of your, your guests here today, um, uh, really helped make the, the process, uh, palatable to, to Parks Canada by her expertise in, in ensuring that we're having a, an ecologically sensitive approach to this kind of work. So maybe I'll absolutely pass it over here back to you. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, Kari, it is Kari, right? That's how you say it. It is. Okay. Yes. I'll make sure I get Kari, Kari. I wasn't, I was, okay. Kari. <laughs> all right. So you're sitting at the office and all of a sudden you get an email that Jasper wants to, to log around town. You go, okay. <laughs> uh, what goes through your mind? What was your reaction? Uh, and, and yeah, just like, just, just walk us through that process for you personally. Well, I actually got a phone call from okay. uh, one of our staff that keeps an eye on all the requests for bids and requests for proposals that come out. And he was fantastically excited. He just he yeah. called me up immediately. This was not an email thing. This was a phone call. And he was so excited. And he said, Jasper has put out a request for bid. For logging, they want logging in the park. I'm like, yeah. what? You're kidding. You've got to be kidding. And he's like, no, no, I'm serious. And we started talking about Is it. Is it April 1st? I don't know what's going on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, we knew about the, the pine beetle up there. Um, it's, yeah. it's a lot of us, we're all outdoor folks, you know, we, and we recreate all over the landscape and, and people knew yep. that it was a big issue there. Um, and so we weren't that surprised, I guess, in a sense to see it. Um, but we were, we were really excited. And so we, we jumped at the chance, um, to have the opportunity to be able to demonstrate what we could do in Jasper. Um, certainly Very we cool. were interested in the wood, uh, for us, it was primarily lodgepole pine. It was good wood. It had the right profile. And we had the right equipment to be able to do the job. And we also had a lot of experience working collaboratively with all sorts of folks like universities, um, local parks in the area, local communities, doing these types of projects before on like wildland, urban interface, harvesting to reduce fire risk around communities, um, doing Mm -hmm. experimental logging for research projects, and just doing lots of work um, that required really a a light touch and consideration of all sorts of different values. So we knew that we could come in and do a really good job here. And so I helped put the proposal together, coming up with some different strategies and different ways that we thought we could address the objectives. And, uh, Mm -hmm. and we put in our bid and then we were super excited when we were chosen. So, yeah. and also okay. I would say very nervous, very nervous. <laughs> I think that's the right approach, right? I think that's the right approach. You're like, okay, we're going to log a national park. Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was it. Exactly. Especially yeah. when we started talking to our contractors, they're like, Absolutely. oh man, we can't screw this up. This was, yeah. you know, I just, I had nightmares for so many nights about, you know, Canfor destroys national park. Across- <laughs> 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 headlines on the newspapers and stuff. So, right. Well, yeah. obviously, I think most importantly, what I've gathered from everyone talking yet, and still we have a Shelly we're going to talk to soon. Eventually, she's responsible for uh, some of the logging that's happening currently, some of the the, the mechanical prescriptions that are happening currently. Um, but um, I get the I get the idea that the parks was looking for the right people with the right headspace, the right values, the right intentions, the right way of going about this, right? Um, and clearly, that's how they selected it, was making sure that the people that are going to be doing this work 
have the values in mind to treat this like a park and not like a yeah like, like you know like a forest management area or whatever um so and actually uh Kari, we didn't we didn't introduce you yet so maybe you want to just introduce yourself uh yeah your role and yeah just real quick and then actually Absolutely. um after that I, I do want to talk i want to get into pretty in depth into uh how this differed for you because I, I listened to the document or the little documentary that fuse consulting put out regarding this um, and I was really captured by your statements talking about how different this was and how much you, how much different perspective you gained through this process and how maybe the value shift happened while you were doing this, right? So yeah, first introduce yourself and then let's get into, uh, the differences between this logging and how it's changed. Yeah. Sure. My name is Kari Stewart Smith and I'm the manager of biodiversity and wildlife for Canfor. I'm based out of Cranbrook, but I work for our Canadian woodland operations in BC and Alberta. And oh, awesome. I've been involved in sort of natural disturbance ecology for almost 30 years now, I guess. In mm. fact, I did my PhD work comparing songbird communities in areas burned by wildfire and in mm. logged areas. So oh, I've done cool. a lot of work on that and really spent my career trying to help our operational folks um, with the development and implementation of strategies for sustainable forest management and how we can mitigate the impacts of logging on wildlife and done gotcha. a lot of collaborative work with universities and governments um, and first mm. nation communities and, and local communities just on, on working to, um, to implement sustainable forest management strategies, you know, around the province, Absolutely. For uh, primarily sure. in BC. But, Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, so that's great. Perfect. Thank you. So yeah, so going into this, you talked about you had nightmares, you're worried about screwing this up. We got to have the right values at play. We got to have the right headspace. We got to be collaborative, right? The, the word collaborative kept coming up. And, you know, we can't do this the way we normally do this. We have to include a bunch of not, and maybe not even include other values, but we have to weight the other values heavier than we normally would. Right. Because I know in forest management, we're always keeping tabs on all of these values, biodiversity and water and recreation and indigenous values. All that stuff's considered. But the way it's weighted is different. Right. So how did how did the weight of those values change for this logging process for you? And, and how much of a mind or how, how much of a shift was it for Canfor to to change their mindset to do this a little differently? Well, it was very interesting because we came in seeing this project as having two objectives. I mean, the primary one was to reduce the canopy fuel density, to reduce the risk of severe wildfire to the town of Jasper, as David and Landon have spoke. And then the second one was to maintain ecological integrity. And we placed the first objective, for us, that was the primary objective. And the maintenance right. of ecological integrity, um, things that were very important for parks, like minimizing soil and ground vegetation disturbance, um, avoiding disturbance to wildlife during sensitive periods, um, maintaining key recreational trails and making sure that there was coarse woody debris on the ground um, to emulate natural disturbance and to help prevent the creation of new recreational trails. You know, those were all things that we were very cognizant of and trying to do, but for us, they were secondary to the main objective of reducing the fuels. But what became quite clear to us as we went through the project that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Landon, but I think you folks saw those two objectives as being equal. And so for us, it was a, a bit of a mind, it was a mind shift that we had to start placing those other things on the same level as the reduction of fuel. And um, 
And it was, it was more challenging for us. We're used to basically having objectives and then figuring out the methods by which to achieve those and being fairly flexible on how we can do those. Whereas with the parks, there were very prescribed methods by which everything was supposed to be done. And they, mm. there were a lot of little details that were written out. And I think if you were to take any one of these things, most of them made a lot of sense. But what we found is when we tried to apply them all concurrently, that it didn't always work very well in terms of both the logistics or the economics for us. And so we had to try and figure out a way around that. Um, and I'll just give you an example. Um, sure. Mm-hmm. Because of the the real concern and a very valid concern around minimizing soil and ground vegetation disturbance. And that was because, you know, we don't want the establishment of any invasive plants or noxious weeds within the park. So oh, yeah. right. um, it was prescribed that no skitters were allowed to be used. So we were using a harvester forward or combination and processing at the stump. And so that leaves a lot of small and moderate sized woody debris on the ground Ah. and the machines can travel over that debris, which then protects the ground from disturbance. We were also logging only in the winter on dry and frozen soils, which again offers another level of, or another degree of protection. Mm -hmm. But what we also had to do was get rid of that finer debris because it is also, uh, that increases the fire hazard. Um, It dries out very quickly and it can really spread a fire very fast. So, one of the other requirements within the contract was for us to pile and burn that smaller stuff. Um, and so that requires another machine to come on, on site, an excavator, to, to pile that into piles. And these piles had to be small, uh, no bigger than three by three by three meters. Mm-hmm. And at a specific density, I think it was no more than one every, every hundred square meters or something. So there was a lot of very, very specific stuff and we were trying to do all these things at once oh and then sorry i I almost forgot there was a requirement to retain coarse woody debris which um are essentially logs um logs larger than seven and a half centimeters but preferably larger ones on the ground to emulate the natural disturbance so when you get a fire a lot of the the trees that are burnt fall down onto the ground and the contract specified uh 60 cubic meters um, to be retained, but the standing volume within the stand to start with was only about 140. So it was mm. almost half of the volume that we were supposed to, you know, cut and leave on the ground. Oh, and yeah, that's we didn't yep. realize that until we really got into the project and actually were, you know, did some detailed cruising of the stands and uh, and it became quite apparent to us that. It were, we couldn't do that economically. We simply couldn't leave that much on site. And also, mm. we felt that that would not be achieving the project objectives of reducing the fuel hazard. And mm. when we tried with our machinery to, to leave some of that, those longer pieces, um, but yeah. having three different machines on the ground, all moving around, um, they were crushing a bunch of that stuff. So it it was just becoming very difficult for us as well. It was taking a lot of time for us to make those piles Mm -hmm. and about half the blocks, we made 3000 small piles. Um, And then it was snowing every night and we were trying to burn them at the same time. We were just falling so far behind in the work and we were really nervous that we were not going to get this work done by Mm. mid March. 
when the ground was going to warm up and there'd be a real danger of, of soil disturbance. Yeah, yeah. And so that's when, you know, we really started talking to each other and saying, okay, is there something we can do differently here? How can we address this, this problem? We know what the objectives are, but what we're doing right now isn't working. And so Landon and I worked really closely together to come up with some alternatives. And we did a couple trials. Um, and one of them was to use skitters. So we used a buncher skitter combination in a couple blocks instead of the harvester forwarders. And there was really two key things there that allowed us to do that. And one was a good snowpack. So there was, mm. oh, it was at least a couple of feet of snow, wasn't there, Landon? Yeah. At that time. Plus, we had been doing some work in a campground. Um, and maybe maybe I'll just stop here. I've been talking for a bit. If you want to talk That's about okay. the campground right. work that gave you the trust in the fact that the skitters wouldn't uh, damage the ground. David or Len? Yeah, I'll, I'll maybe add a few thoughts there. So, you know, Carrie's absolutely right in all the and all the detail that we asked for from our end in our thinking that we needed to apply all these things to, uh, you know, to preserve ecological integrity in the park. And, and as Landon mentioned earlier, some of these things evolved from our experience working with the pipeline going through. You know, we have a whole set of environmental standards on what we're trying to to do to make sure we minimize the impact of of these kinds of disturbance, but I think one of the things that we uh, that we've learned from this experience, and were we to repeat it, we would do differently next time. Is we didn't actually have a professional forester on our side of the table to look mm. at these. I mean, to look at our project and think about well, what what is realistic here? What is realistic to ask of a forestry company, uh, and gotcha. what is unreasonable or won't necessarily be necessary to still achieve our goals? So, we were coming at it from from a very much a a park protection sort of perspective, but without the right uh, forestry perspective, I think, on our side of the table. So, I'm sure, you know, what I think what Kerry's alluding to and what Landon can speak to a bit is that we ended up kind of not 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 in conflict but looking at this problem from two very different worldviews and backgrounds and and Absolutely. even the language that we use is different from the language that a forester would use about how to do yeah. these things so trying to make those things meet in the middle was an interesting challenge and i just want to add an extra layer to the problem here as well that i don't think we've covered yet the area that we were doing this work is what we refer to here as the pyramid bench right adjacent to town. And this is the playground and the backyard of every resident in town. Extensive trail network through this area, uh, mountain bike trails, walking and hiking trails, uh, horse trails uh, through this area. It's also important wildlife habitat, but this is very much on public display because everybody in town uses this area as their as their background. So we've got trails going right through the middle of these cut blocks as well. So it was always top of mind as well that not only do we have a mandate to try to preserve this environment, but we're also going to be very, very much on public display. As soon as things open up again in the summer, the density yeah. of use in that area is very high. People are right in the middle of where we've done this work. So that was always on our mind as well. You know, one of the reasons for maintaining, trying to maintain that level of coarse woody debris was not just to keep some of the material on the ground as well to improve, you know, moisture retention and all those things but also to try to tackle the problem that we anticipated that if we just open this wide up, we're going to see a whole proliferation of, of the trail network because now suddenly mountain bikers will be able to go wherever they want. If there's nothing oh, yeah. blocking yeah. them anymore, you know, those sorts of considerations as well came into the problem. Absolutely. So 
it was really an interesting layering of problems from our side, but then a lack of of uh, of a common language uh, to talk yeah. about these problems between us and between Canfor. So, I mean, I think we totally. handled that conversation really well. As Curry mentioned, as Curry mentioned, uh, Landon and her spent a lot of time coming to terms with that. We tried to approach it with a, with an open mind and say, if you want to trial something different and show us that your way is actually going to work and achieve the objectives let's go for it let's try it out and see what happens and and i think in the end that was very successful and and saved us all uh, a lot of grief the campground project she's referring to most people that are familiar with jasper are familiar as well with the the recent renovation that's happened at the whistler's campground whistler's campground is the the largest single entry campground in the canadian national park system it's a big campground you know, uh, I think Tunnel Mountain and Banff has a few more sites, but it's actually uh, a few separate uh, campgrounds considered in one block. This is one single entry campground, very large campground. And we had a project underway that we needed to uh, redo the whole campground, all the utilities, all the water supply and everything else in that site. Um, but then the pine beetle came, uh, as I talked about earlier, and basically killed all the pine trees that were in Whistler's campground. Uh, so before we could let the contractors in there to do the campground rebuild, we needed to get the wood off that landscape. And that, mm. that happened with a fairly quick turnaround that we realized that, man, this is this is something that the construction contractors aren't going to be able to manage uh, in an appropriate manner, but needs to be dealt with. So then we looked out and saw, well, actually, we've got Canfor engaged here in this contract. Let's broaden the scope a little bit and put them on the ground in the campground there and get that wood off the campground uh, as quickly as mm-hmm. possible so we can proceed with a mm-hmm. campground construction project. And I think that's mm-hmm. what... You need the right the, people for sure. You don't yeah. want to be giving the wrong people the right the wrong job, right? Like, yeah, use the right tools. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's so that's where they came in with, uh, uh, with the other types of equipment to, uh, to do the campground workforce. And it was really an eye-opener, I think, for us uh, on our side of the table to see just how how delicately uh, they could bring this equipment in and do that work. You know, this, this is a campground. There's a lot of infrastructure there. There's road surfaces and, you know, picnic sites and all that kind of stuff, buildings all over the place in there. It's not just an open uh, patch of forest. We're going in to take the wood off. There's all sorts of obstacles. I mean, I assume it would be like trying to be a, a a logger in an obstacle course. You know that normally you don't see that happen. You're just in there to cut the the trees down. But now you have all this stuff in the way. So it was a real great chance to see that. Yep, you can actually do this kind of work very delicately and without a huge amount of uh, of impact if you're careful and and set your objectives carefully. Well, I think that's what what I gathered from this whole from the whole documentary, uh, the short documentary that I watched was that this is a real collaborative win, right? Like you said, you're coming from very different perspectives, right? You've got this this parks conservation approach, and then you've got the uh, forest industry approach, right? And you're you maybe don't even have the same terminology, and when you when you the fact that you've been able to come together. And sit down at a table and have the disagreements and and have and have the hash out the details and try and get on the same page. Uh, the fact that you're able to accomplish that, I think, is the big win here, right? That you're able to see eye to eye and see how okay, this is how we can do this because there's going to be misconceptions from everybody about everybody else, right? So hashing those out early and getting it sorted, I think, was was that's the big win that I see here. That I see it's something that I think can be applied to the landscape level for forest management in general right not just with parks but with forest management like like with mills talking with 
uh, like NGOs and talking with the communities and talking with the First Nations and talking with everybody, right? If, if everyone can come up with that collaborative approach, I see the ultimate win and the ultimate version of forest management taking over. And I see this parks situation as an excellent experiment on doing probably some of the most delicate forest harvesting that anyone's ever tried to do in Canada, right? Um, with the most number of values that are equally weighted, right? Like I'm sure Kari knows like the forest management in, in a national level, usually we can we can treat all these other values as constraints, right? So we just constrain what we do to not have a bad impact. Um, but this is a different thing. This is now we're now we're not just trying to not wreck the resource. We're actually trying to create and build and construct more of those values, those non-timber values on the landscape while also paying for all that work and reducing fire hazard and doing all this kind of stuff. I just get excited about all of it, right? It's very, very it's very cool. I, I see it as 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 kind of maybe opening up the door for more of these kind of conversations and that sort of thing, right? Um, the collaboration, the communication, all that kind of stuff. It's how long did it take you to 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 sit down and try to 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 get these ideas hashed out? So, so Matt, maybe I'll I'll jump in just because I uh, I had a thought about about something that was uh-huh. that was raised and uh, and maybe if I can just uh, uh, plant a little foreshadowing that part of the uh, <laughs> part of the solutions that we came uh, to um, that that David planted a seed for is that uh, we needed to deal with sort of that uh, cultural difference and and language uh, difference almost by having somebody who was fluent in in the language of, of forestry and and that will be you know your other guest on this podcast uh, when she comes in later. Um, but, right after uh, you're done talking, <laughs> exactly. But uh, but I think there was there was kind of a pivotal meeting uh, that that Kari uh, and I kind of um, uh, realized we we both needed um, when when the direction of the of the work was starting to devolve into sort of just uh, operational opposition, and it it involved primarily on the ground contractors who are very good at doing the things that they've always done. And our kind of surveillance personnel who are very good at remembering, no, this is what we said we were going to do. This is what you've signed up for. And on a small project, that's fine. And it, it actually doesn't carry on for long enough to create a lot of friction and you'd usually resolve it fairly quickly. But this was a different scale entirely. <clears throat> and and uh, and I remember um, for for Kari because this this wasn't just this project. It it you know it represented a chance to really showcase uh, what what their company in Camfor could could accomplish. That it was really important to get it right, and uh, and that was something that that uh, really struck me. That okay, we're actually both on the same page with that. So that that's a great starting yeah. point. We both want to get it right and we both want to feel good about it at the end. And so, so a bit of a misconception going into it, maybe that you needed to to train them on what you wanted, but exactly. it turns out they're on the same page. Yeah, yeah. And, and and sort of to abandon our our probably equal cliches and maybe Kari can can speak to whether you had some. <laughs> 
but you know certainly it's it's like well we got to defend against you know the the big greedy timber company and Kari's probably thinking we can't let these tree huggers push us around like <laughs> they want us to do this job and they don't know what what uh what we need to do and i think you know that might have been in in a little bit of our subconscious but uh but we both spoke a, a pretty common language in terms of okay what what my main concern and what I've seen as an ecological legacy of any uh, large scale project is ground disturbance. If you can mm. start with that ground disturbance problem and prevent it from the very beginning, mm. then the land recovers quite well. But in a place like Protect the Rocky the Mountains, yeah, with yeah. thin soils and, and just poor growing conditions, a fairly dry um, uh, site, uh, Things don't come back very well if they've been if they've been damaged or or impacted. And yeah, protect the baseline. That's really the it's the it's the pedestal from which everything else is built. Totally. So you got to keep that okay, and everything yeah. else can come back. But if you wreck the soil, the soils wreck. Like exactly, and and we have you know legacy projects from early on in the in the parks establishment where you know seventy five a hundred years on those scars are still evident and it still hasn't recovered and, and nobody wanted that kind of a legacy. And, and, you know, we had, uh, we had folks like the, the operations manager for the, for the project, um, uh, who was also on side with, with wanting to achieve, you know, good, uh, a good legacy from this project, but starting mm -hmm. to feel frustrated, like there was no way he was going to be able to be successful. And I think, we set a tone at that meeting, Kari, where we all recognize, okay, this is what we really want to achieve. We want to have the, the soil be as, as uh, um, uh, unaffected as possible while still getting, you know, the, the logs off, having all of these other ecological considerations. You know, the small pile thing was all about, again, soil disturbance. And, and the coarse woody debris was, was a multiple reasons and objectives. And, and one that we didn't really touch on is the fact that, you know, large fuels like logs, those don't, um, contribute to fire spread. They, they can contribute to sustaining a fire, which is not the same kind of concern from a fire protection perspective. So, you know, I, I think I started with something like, okay, Let's let's first start with what we're viewing as the problem. Our problem is needles and tiny branches. <laughs> and mm -hmm. and your problem is you want to effectively remove logs so that so that this this project makes sense uh, to you. But we'd be happy if those logs stayed standing and you could remove all the tiny branches and needles for us. And Corey's <laughs> like, yeah, we don't have that equipment. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> So, I mean, you don't have this giant rake that covers 20 no. meters. You can just like rake through the forest, pull up all the branches. I have stuff, seen yeah. a, uh, a German uh, 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 tool that, that goes up a tree and, and trims it in uh, plantations, trims all the lower branches oh. for thinning out plantations. But yeah, nobody's contracting that service out. So it, so it wasn't really <laughs> an option on this project. But uh, yeah, in all seriousness, treating treating this large area and and recognizing that okay, let's start with those those fundamental principles, and that allowed Kari and and Andrew, the the operations manager, to start saying okay, well, to do that, you're saying you want a smaller footprint of ground disturbance. 
what you're requesting in terms of road construction is going to give you a larger area of ground disturbance. If, if we do this kind of road cut, it's going to end up being smaller and we'll, mm. we'll achieve your objective. And it's like, Oh, yeah. and it meant sort of giving up some of that control of like, no, we've said it, it has to be done this way, but you know, right. establishing a certain level of trust, uh, with, with some other projects that were being successful and, and small steps together that we were able to like, okay, no, no, this is working. This is working. And, you know, and that's what led into the campground project of where we're like, well, now we've got the snow cover and the equipment doesn't have to do a lot of turns on the tracks and we don't have to preserve the asphalt because we're tearing up the roads and, and repaving. So we can't, yeah. uh, if you say the operators can move in this environment and, and, uh, and not damage all the other infrastructure we're trying to keep, then let's do it. And we were able to be at that place for that phase of, of the work that was being done. And yeah, I, I think it made a big difference. And now I've talked awesome. again too much and, and it should be hard to this. <laughs> hey, there's five of us here. That's what I, I, I said know. this at the beginning. This is five people. It's hard to get it all in. But uh, I think, uh, I, I, what I find interesting too is like, like you said, right? You, you both came in with, both, both groups came in with preconceived notions of what the other group is like and breaking down that judgment and opening it up so that you can, both sides can be open and honest and vulnerable to, to be like, they can, listen, these are my values. This is what we need. And to, to kind of get that understanding and that trust, like you said, right? That's the collaboration point. That's, it's funny how I've talked to a few different groups. Um, there was like a grizzly bear, uh, collaboration group up in like peace river that had all these stakeholders and they did the same kind of thing. And it's funny how no matter where anyone came from, when you did sit down at the table, when you did start opening up about your values, your deep values and the, the deep things that you want and that and your expertise, and you start to create that trust, like, Oh, they're opening up. They're being vulnerable here. Let me do the same. Obviously this person is someone trustworthy and how, no matter where you come from, as long as that, conversation is being managed appropriately and you can everyone kind of comes all of a sudden everything starts to come together right and you start to see how other people see and you start to trust more and that's the real story i think of this of collaboration right is that if we can be open and vulnerable and honest we can get this to an awesome place because everybody here has skill set everybody here has knowledge base that needs to be applied but they're only going to be applied effectively if we work together and it, it takes that trust and that's i think that's a huge part of it absolutely so uh now jumping in to Shelley. So you, you, you were brought in to, 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 to manage some of this harvesting and, and the, some of the stuff that's going on now. So tell us your story. First, introduce yourself and, uh, and how you got into this role and kind of how you see yourself, uh, in, in this role. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so my name is Shelley Tamlin, and I, I more recently started in Jasper with the team there as their wildfire risk reduction project manager. And my background is as a professional forester in the uh, province of BC. I uh, worked for many, many years, a big chunk of my career as a professional forester, and then uh, made, a, made a transition to working as a project manager for Parks Canada a number of years ago. And I've been doing that for about 10 years now. And uh, the way that I kind of came to working in Jasper uh, was uh, I was working on a project up at the Mayotte Hot Springs doing wildfire risk reduction up there. And yeah, connected with Landon and his team in Jasper. And uh, they saw that I had the experience in forestry and uh, 
wasn't scared to look at uh, removing trees from a from a park to achieve objectives. And uh, yeah, so they brought me over for short term to help with some of their projects. Um, so the, awesome. talking about what we've been doing uh, this last winter, uh, we added a little bit uh, more to the uh, bench guard, the pyramid bench guard. We added another little piece to it. Um, that was a mechanical tree removal with with logging equipment. And then we started a new project over on the east side of the valley. Uh, this will be a new fire guard along uh, up the signal. It's going to be called the signal guard. And we started that right. last winter, and uh, it'll be working on it again next winter. And probably for a few winters following that, it'll be an iterative approach to creating a new fuel break. Awesome. So you were kind of the missing piece. That's, and that's what um, that's what David that's what David was alluding to, right? Like, okay, we're parks, we're biologists, we're conservationists, we're we're the we're these people, right? Protect the thing, and then uh, we have Kari and and Canfor, and they're like, okay, we're yeah, we're the foresters, we're this, but we don't work for parks. We don't we're not into their internal dialogue. We're not into what their values are. We don't know them, right? And so that's I, to me that seems like probably the best decision you guys have made in this whole thing is to bring in somebody that like you said that forester representation for Jasper so uh, what was it like for you to to get this role and did you see this as how much of a challenge did you see this cuz i am i'm assuming it's different it's a much different job than you had before probably yeah i mean i would say it's a uh... Not a huge challenge, actually. It's just a great fit for, for my skill set. So I've got the forestry nice. background and a lot of experience doing project management. So this actually, and, and most of that project management was with Parks Canada. So it kind of oh, allowed okay. me to take my experience with forestry and kind of an industrial commercial setting, my experience doing uh, fuel reduction projects in parks, and then just kind of just marry those two together. So, nice. uh, yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a really great, um, fit for me because I know the language that the loggers speak. And I also know yeah. what parks needs to achieve with their objectives. And I know how difficult it can be to do that given the contracting parameters that we have to follow. So it's, yeah. uh, yeah, I can see Landon going, oh, uh, yeah. Well, I was, <laughs> was going to say, I, I referred to like speaking different languages, like, Matt, you know, I, I talk, talk about fuel and, uh, and habitat and, and, uh, you know, somebody who only speaks forestry would, would talk about fiber or, or, uh, um, and now I'm going right. to mess up the language because I'm not fluently bilingual, but yeah. Kari actually was bilingual. And I think that was a key part of our, our, um, uh, process of, of she did speak ecology and smoke forestry. So that was very helpful for getting, some of those uh some of those translation requirements out i would just say that shelley's actually trilingual because contracting <laughs> and uh, uh project management is also its own language especially within a large organization so she speaks forestry ecology and contracting uh and that's that's kind of what we need for uh the times that we're in in terms of some of the projects that that still need to happen Right. I think that Absolutely. if Shelley had been on the project when we had been working on it, we probably would have had a much easier time of it uh, because we wouldn't have ended up sort of in a little bit of a stalemate where we did in, in late January there, like you said, Landon, because we had people on the ground, you know, our contractor sort of very kind of um, not, not blinders on, no, but, but fairly focused. Yeah. Yeah. By the book. And same same thing with your environmental officer, very by the book. And they were just 
running into a, a bit of a conflict there uh, and not okay. able to see the bigger picture. And I think what yeah. was so important and the biggest lesson that I, or one of the biggest lessons that I learned from this is you really need to focus on the, the objectives and the results and just take a step back and say, what are we trying to achieve here? Let's not worry about trying to meet a specific landing size of no bigger than 30 square meters or, you know, a, a burn pile, no bigger than three meters. But why, why is that number in place? And why? what happens Absolutely. if we do something a little bit different? What happens if we try something different? Can we still achieve the objective that is so important? Like Landon talks about, and, you know, certainly working a lot of my career in the East Kootenai here, where we have such a problem with invasive plants I mm -hmm. understood immediately, you know, the, the concern about damaging the soils and soil disturbance. And you just create that seedbed where invasive plants can get established. And once they're established, you've now got a lifelong battle trying to get rid of them. And obviously, I think everybody can relate to that, right? Like, to that. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, I, I think everyone, everyone's terrible. got dandelions, right? Everyone knows how pain <laughs> the ass it is to get rid of dandelions. So just imagine that in a forest setting, right? Like it's, yeah. It's problematic to say the least. Yeah. Matt, yeah, what? Very, very, yeah. Oh, sorry, Shelly, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, I really appreciate what Kari was saying there. I, I feel like when I started my forestry career, um, back in the nineties, you know, forestry was a very prescriptive type of activity done in a very, you know, meticulous way. And then the, there was a paradigm shift there where we moved to a, a very results-based um, approach, you know, where you're looking yeah. at what your objectives are that you need to achieve and how you can get there. And, I, and I, I'm trying to bring that to my Parks Canada projects as well, instead of um, telling a logger exactly what they can do, what we need to tell them is what we need to achieve in the end, and then open it uh. up to a range of different ways that it can be achieved. And so I'm trying to have my tenders not be so closed and so prescriptive that in the end we can't achieve the objective that we need to achieve because it's economically not feasible for anybody to bid on the work. So right. it's it's a really difficult, tricky balance trying to do these projects in a park and to still yeah. find people that can bid on the work and actually, uh, you know, make a living off of it at the same time. So yeah. Well, and take on the risk of being blamed for wrecking something too, right? Like I'm sure that's a conversation Canfor had. Like, do yep. we want to take on this kind of risk, right? Like it's because there's there is a public perception piece, right? There's a um what is it, the public license thing, right? Like so that 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 is an issue as well. And like so yeah, I I can see that there's there's a lot to talk about and there's a lot to a lot to break down. But it's it's exciting. Like I'm assuming that this is the first real effort like this that's been successful. And obviously it's gone well. Obviously you developed relationship and trust. And now I'm, I'm sure now the, the new logging operations that are happening are probably going a lot smoother because you're, you're having that discussion about, okay, what exactly do we want? What are we trying to do? What values are we trying to protect? How are they weighted? How should I be making these decisions? Instead of, like you said, providing this very, very narrow path of don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, do this. Now you just kind of keep the conceptual framework open and just keep it malleable and keep it changing. That sounds like that's kind of the way you went with it. You know, I have to, uh, I have to throw in one anecdote because it won't uh, jump out of my mind and I won't be able to think of anything else until I get it out. So <laughs> Corey had mentioned the, uh, the 60 uh, cubic meters per hectare requirement for coarse woody debris. And I remember saying like, 
where did this number come from? Where did this number come from? And it was something that that came up during uh, uh, that video that you mentioned that uh, right. um, uh, Matt Piper had had done, and uh, he even was like exploring its whole how like why were we tied to this sixty uh, cubic meters per hectare? And it was from a paper by Piper and Vinge <laughs> that he <had laughs> co-authored. Um, and it was looking at uh, <laughs> boreal forest and coarse woody debris uh, post uh, clearing requirements on uh, for seismic activities and oil and gas exploration. And, you know, absolutely relevant for that uh, ecocyte type. But uh, uh, Kari, I, I think, did a, a very good job of, of presenting um, a compelling argument for coarse woody debris that actually matched uh, a little a little better fit for you know open uh, solar facing slopes in kind of a rocky mountain environment that yeah. you know was was slightly less and and not not the the boreal environment but I just like that sort of full circle of the universe that uh, Matt you know with with the with the microphone now tell me about this 60, 60. <laughs> and Kari's like wait that was you that was you the yeah. that's hilarious yeah yeah that's no, funny it's, it's but that brings up uh just another another point i want to touch on is that's how we resolved a couple of these challenges not just the coarse woody debris one but also the pile size was going to the science to look at what the science can tell us and how can that inform our practices um, cause yeah, for the coarse woody debris, I went and looked at what the actual volumes were in the dry stand types and the pine dominated forests, and they were quite a bit lower. So we were able to use that number instead of the 60. Um, and then for the pile sizes, digging into the literature, it, it was clear that it was actually the size of the pieces in the pile and not the actual size of the pile itself that determined wow the degree of soil scorch and vegetation damage. And so, so how long it's going to burn, you, not necessarily. Yeah. Like, yeah well, and yeah. how hot it burns really. How so hot, as long yes. as you keep those big pieces of wood out of the piles, um, mm. then you don't end up with a lot of soil damage. And so we trialed, you know, going up to like a five by five and even as big as a seven by seven and keeping those big pieces out. And we didn't really see any consistent um, relationship between soil damage and pile size. So, Right. Therefore, we were able to use slightly bigger piles and fewer of them so the work could proceed faster and, so again, really, achieve the results of yeah, no, no Really challenging all the preconceived notions, right? Like everybody's like, I want this. We're like, oh, shit, that's no good. Well, I, wa I want this. I'm like, well, oh, that's not going to work either. And it's like really like every time you turn around, you're running into another issue very specific that – uh you know, you both have ideas of, and then you find a middle ground somehow, right? That ends up being the right way. And it's fun again, right? Bring it all back to collaboration, to trusting one another, and and come. It's like you just it, it really, really is the winner of this story to me from the outside perspective, right? Is it's just it really says so much. So, uh, uh, Carrie, I did want to ask, um, what kind of shifts within uh, Canfor have you seen as a result of this project? How has you have you noticed any any changes that have uh, have evolved because of this? Well, certainly the lessons that we've learned are exactly what we've been talking about. Is is that the more collaboration and sort of open and honest work that you can do with people up front, um, the better off the project's going to be. 
And yeah. I always find that going out into the field, like onto the project site with people and walking it and listening, being very open and listening to what people's values are and what their objectives are for that landscape and, and recognizing that it's, they don't always match our own and that people do have different languages and cultures and, you know, maybe because we do quite a bit of uh, fire interface, like fuel reduction now, and it's not always just about the fuel. There's lots of other things going on close to communities like recreation trails and people have got special places where they they have their favorite wildflowers grow and they don't mm. want the logging equipment to go through there. So we've, yeah. we've ribboned out special places for wildflowers or someone has, you know, they know that there's a, a den for a black bear over here or, or you know, these special yeah. things. And we... The thing is listening to people and working collaboratively with them and adjusting the prescription and doing that all up front. Um, I, I think that's what we've learned. And I think we're better at it now and um, than we were before. And I'm not saying we're perfect by any means. We still have a way to go, ways to go. And, and it's always a challenge trying to balance that with the economics of it. Um, of course. Well, exactly. Like, like David said at the beginning, right? The government doesn't want to split this bill. We want to try and have it pay for itself if possible as much as, as much as we can because the, the public doesn't want to pay for this. And so the more economic you can make it, just the better off. We live in an economic world, right? That's the, just the reality of it. So the more we can balance those things out, the better. And, but you said something really awesome that I, that I find is always true, right? The listening. Just listening. Cause I'm, Everyone comes into a, a situation with their ideas, their preconceived notions, and like I have this thing that I need you to hear, and I I need you to to know it now. Um, and everyone hears it, but they're not necessarily listening and reflecting and empathizing with that position. I imagine it took a lot of <laughs> empathy from everyone to try to perceive where people are coming from, and the listening portion. Yeah, absolutely. It's it seems like. That's something that uh, we could pretty much resolve most of our society's issues. <laughs> I think the so. And for our contractors, trying to – I recall many discussions with the contractors trying to help them overcome their frustration with um, not being able to just go and do things the way that they'd always done things and just saying, look, guys, yeah. it's different here. You have to do things differently. And yeah, yeah. It's and very different cool. doesn't well, have to, to be see. bad. Different is just different. No. But I, I think we, yeah. we often, and you were getting a little metaphysical there, there, Matt, and and applying it to society. But I think that's you know, that could be a a much broader message that a lot of people need to hear. Is like, yeah, you can you can just think about things a little bit differently, and it doesn't have to be as polarized or as uh, black and white or good and bad. It. Uh, it can just be different. Imagine if politics was like that. Instead, they just point fingers and blame each other for everything, right? There's no sitting down and discussing the subject. They're just like, well, you did this stupid thing. Well, you said this back in the day as if no one can like learn from their mistakes, right? Um, but that'll never happen. We don't need to get into that conversation. Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, Shelly, actually, I, want, I wanted to ask you, how are, how are things going now? So, you, you've, like you mentioned, there's obviously this was a success. Obviously, the public's on board. Obviously, Parks is happy. Obviously, Canfor is happy. Obviously, there is a lot of good things happening here, a lot of lessons learned. Um, so, you're responsible for some of the new, new projects that are happening around town. It looks like there's a lot going on. Um, how is that going? 
Yeah, thanks for asking. So, yep, there's a few new projects that we um, were undertaking last winter, and I think they went really well, actually. Uh, people in the parks who live in the parks and visit the parks, are they're becoming used to seeing uh, fuel treatments in the park, whether it's prescribed burn, whether it's hand treatments, and sometimes it's mechanical tree removal as well. And, and uh, so we were able to complete two projects last winter. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, one is directly adjacent to the pyramid bench guard, small 10 hectare block. And that was a conventional uh, logging that was undertaken. Um, very simple mm-hmm. ground um, done with a forwarder harvester type approach and uh, building on a lot of the uh, lessons learned from the pyramid project, which was directly adjacent. You know, uh, <laughs> it's interesting because I'm sure Canfor had a learning curve with it all, but Parks Canada, of course, had a learning curve as well with that project. And a lot of those lessons learned went to David and to Landon, who then have passed those along to me. And we made sure to incorporate those in uh, the projects that we were undertaking last winter and, and projects that we'll undertake in the future. You know, uh, so we, we finished that project off. It was about 10 hectares in size. And then later in the winter, we moved over onto the other side of the valley um, to start on a new fire guard um, that'll protect town from the east side and uh, in the Keith Lakes area. Did about 13 hectares of conventional uh, logging in that area as well. Again, with the same forder harvester set up. Um, kind of a mixed wood type. So in that block, we were able to leave quite a bit of aspen standing. Both blocks actually ended up with about 30% retention of live uh, lodgepole pine and uh, some smaller spruce, Douglas fir and uh, aspen, uh, which was a challenge for the logger to try and work around all of that, you know, in in addition to the small pile sizes that we want and logging on, you have frozen ground, uh, you know, we we ask a lot of loggers and, uh, and uh, we work closely with them every day to make sure that we can achieve our objectives. And yeah, so the, the the second block that I was talking about, the second unit there over around Keith Lakes will be an anchor point for a new fire guard that we are planning up the side of single signal mountain uh, to protect the east side of the valley. And uh, yeah, so that's something that I'm working on now, actually, I'm kind of doing all the planning and development consultations, and I'll be getting the approvals and funding in place for that one. And then uh, we'll go nice. to contracting and hopefully um, get some work done on that one next winter as well. And it'll be another mechanical tree removal, at least initially to start. Uh, it's a big, big guard. It's It won't be wide. It'll be a narrow guard. Uh, kind of linking together some wet lands um, and some natural open uh, mixed forest aspen types. And um, it won't just be a mechanical tree removal, but it'll be, it'll kind of be an iterative approach. So uh, while initially we'll be using some mechanical tree removal, there'll be certainly will be some, some hand treatments in there. um, And then uh, down the road, some prescribed burning as well. So it won't be exactly the same as the, a uh, larger uh, guard that we see over the community guard that we see over on the uh, pyramid bench. It'll be it'll be a different type of guard, but we will see um, yeah. some 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 more logging happening in the park next winter. So yeah. maybe I could Very jump cool. back in. I've, I've been sitting listening for a little no, bit. No, you're not here, allowed. But... You're done. You talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, no, please do. <laughs> you know, Shelley's uh, right. We're we're making some great progress. You know, using this tool that we really. Uh, had that you know exploratory use of with the the most significant single block of course um, has been 
what we worked with on Canfor there on the Pyramid Bench, that was a major undertaking. It was a major hurdle for us to get over, I think, mentally and how we're managing this place. Uh, and like Landon said, not to move away from prescribed fire as as our preferred tool, uh, but really to bring back the possibility that we could do this safely in this environment. Uh, so, you know, just this spring, we had an objective of, of, of we, we hope to pull off a prescribed fire on the bench on what we're calling the Razorback unit uh, that's surrounded on on two sides anyways by by area that Canfor treated. That's part of the, you know, pushing this fire, bound, uh, fire protection a little further. We weren't able to to, to get that fire off just because of, well, we, we got rain uh, that, that that greened it up a little faster than we anticipated when, when it looked like conditions were just coming into prescription. So that'll hopefully go this fall. Uh, but the really, I think the thing I wanted to comment on the most here is that, you know, that experience of getting over that mental hurdle with the, the pyramid bench unit uh, has really opened the door uh, a lot, but it's, we had those challenges that we've talked about in in coming to a common language and solving some of those problems, uh, but the outcome there really speaks for itself. And when you go now and ride your bike around on the pyramid bench there, or go for a hike, you know those of us that that know what happened there, that know that this was a mechanical wood removal, you can still see that. You can see the signs of it. But people that don't know what to look for there would have no idea what we've undertaken there. No idea that we once had, you know, skidders driving through that and haul roads and, and decks of logs waiting to be hauled out and that it, it looked for a period like an industrial forest landscape. I've got a picture of myself in my Parse Canada uniform standing next to this massive log deck here in the middle of a national park thinking right. that's not something I ever expected to see in my career. Um, but I really enjoy now getting up there and seeing that, wow, we can enjoy this place uh, and and not have the feeling that we're walking through an old clear cut. It doesn't feel like that at all. Like we we solved those problems that we were faced with. I think in a way that has resulted in, um, in a in a really fantastic output uh, outcome there. Uh, and it's not that you know we've reduced the fire risk to this community to zero. We've made a big big step forward in reducing that fire risk, and it's an ongoing project. Uh, but that really got the community and got us in Parse Canada over that hurdle to think, you know, we can look at that now and say, yes, we can proceed with more of this work uh, with some of the lessons that we've learned uh, and see a really good outcome and then get ourselves back in a position where we can, you know, rely on this where it's the appropriate tool and put fire on the landscape where that's the appropriate tool and and really try to use a combination of different tools to just increase the the range of possibility here and, and continue to to make these improvements. Yeah. Look what trust can do, right? Yeah. Look what it can do. This is what we can accomplish. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. And I, I wanted to, to plant a seed here. It might be a seed that's already planted, but especially with uh, with Amy Cardinal Christensen working for parks now, right? But now with these areas opened up, I wonder, I, I wonder it'd be very cool to see, because I know the cultural burning uh, piece is something that is, is kind of be reviving now, right? And communities are starting to learn that they're trying to get this opportunity back, right? Um, I wonder. I, I wonder if that's something that is uh, is potentially on the books. I wonder if it's something that's that's going to come up, and that these areas where you have removed a lot of the dangerous fuels, where you might be able to do provide that other opportunity, where it's not just fuel reduction, but provide uh, an opportunity to revitalize indigenous communities that that you know once held strong in Jasper in, in that area, right? There might be opportunities there as well to not just deal with the ecological, but deal with the social as well and maybe provide, give back in that way, right? 
I think that would be cool personally. I hope it, I hope it, I hope it happens. <laughs> well, it's certainly a, a, a subject we're exploring. You know, we've got a, we've got a cultural yeah. use area set aside here in Jasper that it's a special place that, you know, our indigenous partners can come and, and, and use for ceremony and gatherings and things like that. It's, it's only the first, I think of, of a push in that direction, which is great. We worked with indigenous contractors this winter to improve the, to reduce fire risk in that area. Uh, and we have, an ongoing conversation, uh, you know, that Landon's been pushing on here to, to try to find a way uh, to bring some of that cultural burning back to engage Indigenous partners in in opportunities to put uh, that uh, Indigenous burning back on the landscape where where it's appropriate and where it meets our objectives and, and their objectives. So we're not quite there yet, uh, but it's certainly on our on our mind and something we're striving uh, for in the future. Absolutely. Well, you got Amy who works for Parks now, so you got the right you got the right person to talk to, anyways. I know she's a very, very, very incredibly busy person, but <laughs> but I know that this she's this is her passion, right? So, um, yeah, that's cool. Um, so anything else? Does anybody have any kind of final final thoughts they want to share to kind of put a cap on this whole conversation? I think we've. I think we've done a good job of, of running the gamut of explaining what's going on, how things are going to move forward. Obviously, there's there's with, with Shelley at the helm now. You've 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 got more opportunity to to actively do this kind of stuff, and to, the fear is gone, right? Of using mechanical removal to do this kind of stuff, the fear is gone. The trust is there. the The situation is primed it for like kind of a new era, a uh, new era, a new era <laughs> of of, uh, of landscape management and parks. Right? There'll be some new errors as well. Yeah, there's <laughs> yeah. a, a bit of a Freudian slip, I think. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, does anybody have any final thoughts they want they want to throw out there just as a yeah, just to cap things off? And if not, that's okay as well. We well, I'd be interested to hear from Kari. Would Can Forever log in a national park again after this experience? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think we would. Um, we would do some things differently, though, for yeah. sure, um, with some benefits of hindsight. Absolutely. Um, because we, we underestimated uh, how long it would take us to do certain things. You know, there were things in this project that we'd never done before, like the piling and burning. Mm. Um, and that was the number one thing that we... Uh, we're really falling behind on. Um, so, so with that for sure. Um, and then around the economics of it, absolutely. Mm. Um, you know, it certainly wasn't a big money maker for us. I'll put it that way. Um, not that we oh, would yeah. expect it to be, <laughs> but uh, we need to think that through a little better as well and how we, how we approach that one. But I would love to do some more work in a national park. <laughs> it sounds like you learned a lot. I, I, yeah, I think we all learned a lot. I, I'm wondering, Kari, yeah. have you been back in in the recent last couple of years to actually see the 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 outcomes there? I'm not sure if you've been back into Jasper recently. Well, I was there in August of 2020 when we put the video together, yeah. and so I walked through it then, but not since then. Although I do have plans to be up in about a month um, on my way up into northern BC for work. So I'm really looking forward to walking through the blocks then. And uh, maybe I'll give you folks a call. We could do a walkthrough together of some areas. Well, it just continues to get better up there, I think, that uh, as things uh, come back and flower and everything else. So that would be good timing. That's great. I'm really keen to see how it looks now. Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody. This is incredible. I think we uh, we managed to stick handle this conversation into a place where it's productive and people are going to learn a lot and and kind of it's a it's a feel good story. I love it. 
kind of stuff they're looking for, right? I'm always looking for what's the next stage, what's the next step, what's the next advancement, and I think this is such a a great example of the next thing, right? So thank you everybody for being involved. This is incredible. Um, I can't wait to to share it. So thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I know it was, uh, there's a lot coming at you there, right? Talking about values and collaboration and listening and very specifics about harvesting and what to do, what not to do. And there was a lot going on. Um, I'm glad you stuck with it. I learned a whole bunch and I couldn't be happier to have them all on. Um, These kind of stories, I don't know, they, they provide a lot of spark, I think, for the future of forest management and the future of land management, the future of what we're going to do as a species when it comes to stewarding the landscape. Uh, I hope you got that. I know I got that out of it. <laughs> so I hope you guys got it too. I hope you like that. And uh, if you want to support this podcast, you can share it with your friends and family on social media. Uh, you can rate and review on Spotify and Apple Music or Apple Podcasts, I should say. And uh, just get it out there. It's free content. Get out there. Help me out. I appreciate it. Please, please, please. And uh, that's it. Thanks a lot. We'll catch you next time.